Hello and welcome to Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and our Patreon supporters. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs here, as always, with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and of New York City. Hello, Ben. Hello. We will, on this podcast, continue our team preview series. We will talk with Aaron Gleeman about the somewhat miserable Minnesota Twins and with Chelsea Janes about the far less miserable Washington Nationals. But before that, we have... I don't know. Do you have anything? Do you have any banter? I'm going to make you talk for a minute, I think. Okay. (laughs) So if you want to make me talk first, you can. Uh, No, that's all right. So I've (laughs) sent you a link that uh, that you can share. Uh, This is something I just came across. It's nothing important, but there's an article on Indians.com, I guess. It's headlined, Miller's first live BP draws respect from teammates, which as I read that aloud, that's a silly Headline about a very silly topic, but I don't know what else you're supposed to write. That's what you write about on February 20th. <laughs> February I guess. 23rd. It's a Jordan Bastard <laughs> the, article. The Indians respect Andrew Miller. <laughs> and I mean, I only because came here because. Because they through BP. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Only now, only now can they vouch for Andrew Miller's stuff. <laughs> Wasn't convinced by the postseason, but. I only came here because uh, the article mentions Andrew Miller throwing a changeup. And so that's one of those, like, oh, maybe pitcher working on new thing uh, mm-hmm. of. Uh, of the year. I haven't looked to see if Andrew Miller actually threw any changeups last year, but the quick answer would be that he did not. According to Fangraphs, at least he has not thrown a changeup since 2012. So, you know, something there. Probably not going to use it. Probably not going to need it. He's Andrew Miller. But if you, you look at the, the thumbnail, there, there's a video embedded at the top of this article, like with a lot of MLB.com articles. And if you don't click on the video, you don't need to, although the image is also within the video, you see the, uh, the arrow symbol, which is meant for you to click to play, but you see mm-hmm. a hitter, a blurry hitter in the foreground, right? And then you see Andrew Miller throwing a pitch. I assume you're seeing the same thing as me. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Miller is throwing a pitch to the batter. And behind Andrew Miller is a net. And behind the net is a coach. <laughs> yeah. All of the items in this picture make complete sense. But the order of them seems to be poorly arranged because wouldn't it not generally be the pitcher pitching from behind the net such that the net is there to protect the pitcher i was watching a clip of felix hernandez throwing batting practice today or yesterday and like most pitchers who pitch around nets he pitches from behind the net uh because in in this image you have a net there was a man behind it granted there is a a coach behind the net but the coach is probably at least five maybe ten feet behind andrew miller i feel like the coach would be better prepared to defend himself from a comebacker (laughs) not only because he's standing there with his arms crossed looking directly at the hitter but also because he's standing directly behind another human but most importantly if you had miller behind the net you could also have the coach behind the net neither one of them would be in any danger so what do you make of this yeah you make a good observation here how did it work with felix where was the net placed because obviously when a coach is throwing bp like a regular bp pitcher is throwing bp he's not doing the full delivery off a mound so he's just kind of tossing and you can put the net wherever you want whereas if a pitcher is actually throwing live bp and he's treating it as an actual pitching appearance then he would want to be on the mound and have his full stride and everything so where was it placed for felix front of the mound yeah so that so, you could pitch around it Right. So you could do that in this situation and the coach would still presumably be protected, but Andrew Miller would also be protected. Maybe it's possible that Andrew Miller just doesn't like pitching from behind a screen and he feels like it alters his delivery somehow to have to throw over the screen or know that he's throwing over a screen. I don't know. It's it's a weird explanation. But also, 
Importantly, I just, so I just read the rest of the article. Very importantly, this is Andrew Miller throwing live BP to Carlos Santana, Brandon Geyer, and Jose Ramirez, and they also all opted not to swing. So why is there a net in the first place? What is it there to protect? Is it was there another drill? I I understand yeah. there's a lot going on on the field, but this seems I I never liked pitching from behind a net. Uh, but I also was not very good. I was not Andrew Miller. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's it's optimistic on the hitters' part to expect that Miller would need a net at there at all, even if they were to swing. But something something seems like it is out of order, and I <laughs> I would demand a further explanation if I actually cared. Yeah, it seems like Jordan missed an opportunity here to have a, a much more viral article about the strange <laughs> configuration of mound and net and coach at this Indians BP session. What if there had been a comeback, or what if Miller got hit? <laughs> then this is basically the same article as this guy opted not to wear a, a helmet protector during yeah, BP. right. Well, what I was going to ask you to do is just quickly, since we're doing this team preview podcast segment and we're going team by team, I thought maybe you could give us a snapshot of the league because you just wrote about that. And so you don't need to do any extra prep for that, but you (laughs) looked at the league as a whole and you found it to be unusually top heavy. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think we've both written in the past about the uh, apparent parity in the league competitive balance. A few years ago, the projections thought that the league would be very tight. We both presumably measured that with standard deviations, etc. Mm-hmm. And in 2014, I believe the projections said that the league would be tighter than, I'm going to say ever, but ever only goes back to 2005, which is as far back as I have had access to team projections. So in 2014, things looked like they were going to be really tight in terms of records and things did work out being fairly tight also in terms of how things played out. 2015, the spread in record got a little bit bigger by the projections. 2016, it got bigger still. And then this year, they are even bigger. We are seeing the biggest spread in projected talent, I guess, among the teams in a very long time. Uh, Right now, there are six teams according to the Fangraphs projections, who are projected to win at least 91 games, those being the Cubs, Dodgers, Red Sox, Indians, Astros, and Nationals, none of which are surprising. This week, I asked the uh, the Fangraphs community to offer feedback on the team projections, and the community agreed, essentially, with all six of those projections, saying that all those teams are definitely good. They are definitely the division favorites. So I don't know what this means. I don't know how important it is, and of course, there's always a difference between how things are projected and how things play out, but this this seems like it is a, a very top-heavy league and that there are there's one clear favorite for all six divisions, and then mm-hmm. beyond that, it gets considerably worse. I know there are interesting teams like the Giants and Mets, but they have more questions than the teams in front of them. As a consequence of having so many good teams, you have very bad teams like, but not limited to, the Padres, Brewers, White Sox, and Reds. I guess I shouldn't leave the Phillies out, but whatever. Um, (laughs) I wonder what you might think. When I was trying to come up with an explanation for why we could have seen the ships, the only thing I could come up with that isn't just, it's random, is that it could be connected to the new wildcard, where I think, anecdotally, I think that when the wildcard was initially expanded, there was a sense that, oh, if you're just try to win 84 85 games you can kind of luck into a wild card slot and then maybe right. you can go all the way and since then again anecdotally it feels like there have been more executives saying well we don't want to be just okay we want to be really good we've seen the red sox act really aggressively the cubs have traded some long-term for short-term value the 
Dodgers have stubbornly refused to do that. But the even the Indians pushed forward for Andrew Miller. The Astros made aggressive moves. So do you feel like there's been a shift or am I just making too much out of nothing? Yeah, it could definitely be random, but I can buy that to an extent. I think it sort of makes sense that if you're in a certain range that you would those marginal wins to get you from whatever 87 or something to 92 or whatever it takes to make you just one of those wildcard contenders to a division favorite those wins are worth a lot because you get to skip that 50 50 game and that playoff appearance is worth much much more so it makes sense that you would spend to try to get into that range or that maybe if you're below the wildcard range you'd just spend enough to sort of stay in that middle muddle and you know you'll at least have a chance and maybe you can't get up into the upper tier but you don't have to do too much to differentiate yourselves from the other teams that are all kind of in that jumble because you'll all be projected for 84 or whatever and then randomness will decide who actually Mm -hmm. gets the wild cards so yeah it makes some sense to me i don't know right now it seems lucky that we have a wild card or else this season would potentially be not very interesting, but it could be that we have this kind of configuration because of the wild card. So Mm -hmm. hard to say. Yeah. I I would agree that maybe teams are prioritizing more, trying to win the division and avoid that one game playoff at all, because that kind of, that kind of sucks. And you can ask the pirates how that feels. Yep. All right. Well, let's get to the team preview segment. Okay, so for the good baseball team part of this podcast, we are talking about the Washington Nationals. And to tell us about the Nationals, we are welcoming in Chelsea James, who covers them for the Washington Post. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. How are you guys? Okay, so maybe we can start discussing the Nationals offseason by going back to the beginning or, or one of the first major moves and maybe the defining move of the winter, the Adam Eaton trade. And I'm interested in the organization's rationale, not just for acquiring Eaton, but also, I think, in giving rid of the guys that it had to give up in that deal. So whether it's Lopez or Giolito, I'd be interested in hearing what you've heard from the team as far as those guys are concerned and also what they think they are getting in Adam Eaton. Yeah, I think... Obviously, when you looked at that hall and saw Giolito's name and Lopez's name, you kind of, everyone sort of threw up their hands. But I think internally, and I think a little bit around the league too, the sense was that maybe Giolito wasn't quite what we thought he was, wasn't quite that top-tier prospect, front-of-the-rotation lock. Maybe he was going to be more of a three-starter or a solid four-five starter, which is still something to be prized because it takes You know, a lot of guys try to get to that spot and don't, but it's not quite what they thought they had. I think Lopez, you sort of know you're giving up a lot. That was someone they were comfortable parting with, you know, pretty much all along for the right deal. And then Dane Dunning was kind of too early in the process to tell. But I I really think in Giolito's case, they just didn't see him the same way anymore. And, you know, in terms of what they think they're getting in Eaton, I think they, they believe he is an underrated guy who's going to add a lot to their lineup in terms of peskiness 
and most importantly is going to do it for five years at a very cheap price. They're all about value. They hunt it wherever they can find it. I think Mike Rizzo saw a lot of grit in Eaton and has really tried to turn this team into a low strikeout, high grit kind of lineup. They see speed, they see athleticism, and again, they see it cheap for a long time. And I think that's what made him more attractive to them than, say, Andrew McCutcheon, who we know they talked about. You know, obviously, you or I might say, well, how can you value Adam Eaton higher than Andrew McCutcheon? But I think it was just the control, the long-term value, and exactly the profile that he brought to that lineup. If we could, uh, if we could just get this question out of the way, you know it's coming. So I'm going to pause after every word, and then you can stop me when you know where it's going. Is Bryce Harper good? <laughs> I actually didn't know quite where you were going. I thought you might say healthy, you know, or was he? The healthy, same thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you know, connected. It seems like it might be. Um, I, I think the answer to both is yes. I, I, mean, I think obviously he's good. You know, our, our standards are so incredibly out of whack with him. And I, I think it's fair to say, yeah, last year was a down year, of course. But you know, what he's been able to do so young is still very impressive. Now, all of those, you know, necessary caveats aside, last year was very disappointing. And, and that injury that, you know, we keep hinting at and keep hearing about never materialized. So I think that the beginning of this year is going to be really interesting. You know, we'll get more of a sense of who this guy really is. Is he 15 Bryce Harper? Is he no longer patient enough, no longer having enough fun to be that guy who's making baseball fun again and all over the place, you know. So I think he's healthy. I think he's good. I just don't know exactly how good, and I think we're going to find out very early this year. And it seems like the Nets went after some free agents and didn't land them, whether it was Melanson and Cespedes. Maybe there were some others. Do you think that ultimately that hurt them, that they didn't complete their plan with the pieces maybe they'd envisioned bringing in? And is there any reason why they struck out on certain guys? Or is it just a fluke of the market that there were other teams willing to offer more, maybe? You know, I, I mean, I think in, like, the case of Kenley Jansen, they offered more than he got. And, and the one thing you can kind of point to is their budget's a little unpredictable. Mm. You know, Mike Rizzo doesn't get a budget and, and get told exactly what that is from the start. A lot of times he has to go through ownership, and they're a little bit – I'm not going to say – too stingy because they've put together a fairly substantial payroll and paid a lot of guys a lot of money, but they're just sort of unpredictable in what they'll pay for and what they won't. So, you know, you're not necessarily going full full go after Kenley Jansen from the start. You're sort of saying, okay, can we do this? Maybe we should get in. Okay, let's get in. Meanwhile, Kenley Jansen's hearing, you know, a steady chorus of we want you, we love you from the Dodgers, and it feels different. So, you know, I think in a lot of cases that's part of it. I think that their desire to defer money is something that turns a lot of guys off, and you can see why. But, I mean, I think in a lot of cases they just set up, you know, the overarching thing is that they set a price point and they don't budge, and that's a Mike Rizzo staple. That You know, if we want Mark Melanson at this price and don't want to front-load a deal and give him the kind of opt-outs the Giants gave him, we're not going to do it. You know, I know we need a closer, but we're not going to do it. That's kind of what his mindset is. And I think you've seen that really across the board where they just don't reach. And, that's why the Eaton trade was a little surprising. That's why the offer they put together for Jansen really told you how much they wanted a closer. And I think that really the only thing you can look at their offseason and say they didn't address, particularly after now that they've added Matt Wieters, is that closing spot. And I think that's largely because they wouldn't really reach outside of Jansen. 
and clearly related to that closer spot. From the outside, you kind of get the sense that David Robertson, to some extent, just feels inevitable. Do you have a similar sense, or do you actually buy into this Trinan-Kelly-Glover competition going on in spring training? I don't think Robertson's inevitable, and I know why it feels that way, and you know it does make a lot of sense on paper, but David Robertson is owed $25 million. The Nationals have already given up a great deal of prospects, and I just don't see them making that deal. I, I, I mean, it could happen, but it, it would be a little bit out of character all around for them to kind of take on that much money or give up the prospects it would take to get the White Sox to pay that much money. So I don't see that happening. I think that at some point they've become very comfortable with those guys that they've had. If you look at a guy like Coda Glover, who might not be ready day one, but might be ready July one, you, you've got a kid who is pretty much a – you know, prototypical closer and everything from his demeanor to his stuff. And you've got guys in Kelly and Trining that can probably hold down that ninth inning in the meantime. Now, that's not ideal. You'd rather have Melanson. You'd rather have Jansen. And it is certainly a glaring hole. But it doesn't necessarily have to doom them. And I think you've seen the number of teams that have changed closers midseason and gone on to win the World Series is five of the last five, I think. So I don't think they see that as something that's going to doom them. They will probably feel differently in June if they are a couple games under 500 and can't hold a lead. But for now, I think they believe that they can do it this way. And I, I don't necessarily see Robertson as inevitable. And the Nationals have first base options other than Ryan Zimmerman. They picked up Adam Lind. And I'm curious how you think they will handle that delicate dance that teams have to do when they have someone who's been with the franchise from the beginning and has a lot of status and is a good guy but is maybe declining as a player and you have to figure out how to phase him out even though he's under team control for three more seasons including this one plus a a team option so what do you think he has left first of all and how do you expect Dusty Baker to sort of finesse the personalities involved? You know, maybe I've bought into the same kind of feelings that are so prevalent around the Nats, but I tend to think he has something left. And, you know, it's it's just hard to imagine him kind of fizzling out the way he has. He has had a lot of fluky injuries. He's had a lot more, you know, kind of disturbing muscular injuries that make you think maybe he's getting old. But, you know, in terms of how they handle it, I think at the beginning of the season, it's just a lot of crossed fingers. You know, a lot of people saying, man, I really hope he can figure this out. I hope we can simplify the swing a little bit. And we don't have to make that decision about what to do with Ryan Zimmerman. That being said, I think the fact that they brought in Lind is a clear sign that they know that time might be coming, that they might have to, you know, have somebody there to push him or, you know, give them an option if Zimmerman isn't healthy or isn't producing. And, you know, I think they're readying themselves for that moment. But as of right now, I don't think they're at a point where they're going to bench Ryan Zimmerman. I think they're going to give him plenty of leeway to figure things out. I think that is easier in this lineup, especially now with leaders, that he doesn't have to do anything. You know, he can be the worst of the first eight, you know, the starting eight, and they'll still be fine with the names that they have. So I think they're going to give him a long runway and, and hope he figures it out. But I think this is the kind of decision year for them. If you're in July and he's still not hitting, you've got Adam Lind and you've got options, and you're probably going to have to sit Ryan Zimmerman for a little bit, as tough as that'll be. 
I know we talked about Adam Eaton a little bit earlier, and it's obviously way too early in spring training for you to have gotten a very good glimpse, but do you sense that there's any sort of internal, I don't know, consternation about how he's going to adjust back to center field, or is the team very confident that he's going to be able to be as good as he was just a year ago in right field in Chicago? I think the Nats internally think he's going to be absolutely fine. I think that they have their own internal concerns about defensive metrics, which is to say that they don't use them. But I think the things that really go against him, they have kind of attributed to you know health or luck or small sample or whatever it is. You know, I just don't think they're super concerned. And I, you know, I think Eaton's kind of assured them that there's nothing there to worry about. And I just, I think they're not worried about it. I think that they've kind of dealt with some shakiness in center field over the years and having a guy out there, even if he's not, you know, an elite top tier guy, just having that guy there all year, every day, you know, know what you're going to get kind of thing between Worth and Harper, providing that kind of speed between, you know, Worth, who's obviously not as mobile as he used to be, and Harper, who, you know, is selectively mobile. Um, I think, (laughs) you know, I think that's good for them. I think that's what they need. And it seems like the Nationals are really kind of counting on Strasburg and Joe Ross because they dealt away a lot of their rotation depth. And if those guys go down or one of those guys goes down or dipping into very unproven, shaky territory, I guess there's A.J. Cole and Austin Voth and guys like that. But what's the status, first of all, of of those two guys who are maybe the greatest injury risks in the rotation and then how well do you think they can cope if something does befall them you yeah, so the first question it's funny they had an interest squad game today and steven strasberg you know and tanner roark were the two guys who threw and as dusty said after if there was something wrong with steven strasberg he wouldn't be throwing on day one so i i think they're operating as if he is healthy you know that injury he never really had to turn on the gas last fall in terms of trying to push to get back because they got eliminated. I guess that's the silver lining there that, you know, he didn't push through anything. He thinks he's healed. He thinks he knows how to better manage whatever it was that was giving him trouble. And I think that they're just going to back off him a little bit, maybe have him throw a little bit less, but otherwise they're treating him healthy. And and as for Joe Ross, we really haven't seen him enough early to kind of tell. I think the shoulder thing might even be a little trickier than Strasburg's because, you know, it's required mechanical adjustments and, and things that he's always kind of going to have in the back of his mind. So whether those affect him or not, I guess we'll see. But losing either or even losing Scherzer for any period of time because this finger thing that he's got going on just isn't really going away as quickly as they thought, I don't think they're in a great position mm. to cope with that. You know, they do have A.J. Cole who had some success and has looked really good this spring. Austin Voth, who you mentioned, who is kind of knocking on the door but never got a shot. But beyond that, they're pretty thin. I don't know that either of those guys is a you know long-term fifth starter. So, you know, I think they are putting a lot of weight on everyone staying healthy, and those are some guys that haven't traditionally always stayed healthy, and it certainly feels like they're playing with fire a little bit. Uh, so, Matt Wieters, I guess we haven't talked about that yet. It's really easy to point to the Boris and ownership connection, but outside of that connection, what was the point, I guess, I don't know, a less rude way to put it with regard to Matt Wieters, but, you know, they sought out Derek Norris thinking that he would be a bounce-back candidate, and Lobatone has been a reliable backup. There's Pedro Severino still in-house. What's what's the real upside in having Matt Wieters play 100, 110 games for this team? I think he was available at a price that they felt was a value, and he was better than what they had. I think, you know, you can look at the defensive analytics and, you know, everything, and, 
you know, I've heard a lot of people kind of come to this conclusion that he's not that much better than Derek Norris, but I think if anyone in baseball had to pick a catcher, they would choose Matt Wieters over Derek Norris. And I, you know, I think it was that simple. You know, I think you're right that the, the Boris, you know, Ted Lerner connection obviously comes into play. You know, they're, they're always in contact. It seems like always, you know, something's brewing, but he's better, I think, on a really simple level. And they're going to probably offload Derek Norris, save $4 million there, and, and just they think they found a value. And, I, you know, I think another thing is for all the knocks against him defensively and pitch framing and all that, he was very well respected from everything I've heard in terms of calling games with Baltimore. And that's something that with Ramos they really didn't have. And, you know, to have a good, smart game caller with this pitching staff, I think, is something that could really improve what is already a strength when healthy for this team. And I think that they saw that too, that there's there's a guy who's going to manage these guys in a way that no one really has in the last few years and manage a young bullpen that certainly is going to need it. So I think that's what they saw. Probably not a huge, huge, huge upgrade, and it may seem kind of silly, but I think on a basic level they they said, okay, less than he was originally going to get, better than what we have, let's do it. Trey Turner last year played about half a season or so for the Nationals altogether, and if you just sort of doubled his playing time, he would have ended up with 60-something steals and 25-plus homers if you just doubled all his totals. How close do you think you would come to doubling his totals if he actually does play a full season this year, or is the power going to take a significant step back? I, mean, I would guess that the power would dip, but I also didn't expect there to be that much power in the first place, so I guess I don't know for sure. I just think the way they'll pitch him, I mean, he, I mean, what helped him so much last year is that he didn't miss fastballs, you know, whether he got one in at bat or four in at bat, when he got the right one, he hit it, and... If, I'm assuming he's going to get a lot more junk and, you know, a lot he's going to get adjusted to and, and probably that'll limit his ability to kind of square those balls up like he did so often last year. But I mean, other than that, I, I don't see necessarily why the average would have to drop a whole lot. I mean, it was pretty ridiculous, you know, what he was able to do the first, you know, the second half. So maybe it'll go down 10, 20 points, but I certainly think he's a 300 hitter. If only because you can, all he has to do is, you know, get the ball to go 25 feet and run, you know. So he, he's sort of slump-proof in that way that he can just make contact and he's good. So, you know, I think those numbers are there. I think the steals will depend on whether they choose to hit him first or second, which is sort of a topic of debate right now. But, you know, overall, I, I don't see why anything other than the power would drop off a lot. But it is such a small sample size to have half that season and, and people really didn't have time to adjust and, you know, when they do is, I guess, when we'll really know what we have in Trey Turner. One of the fun things about last year's Nationals is that they got so much better than they were the year before, even though Bryce Harper obviously had the year that Bryce Harper had. And I think what it was really underscored that the Nationals had a lot of very talented players on the team. Clearly, they brought up Trey Turner. Anthony Rendon is there forever underrated. Daniel Murphy has been one of the most incredible late career breakouts and and now they just picked up Adam Eaton so that's that's like a really elite level top five group of position players and out of that group if you had to choose which player was going to be the most valuable player of the five this coming season which would you pick wow um (laughs) I I like Murphy I think that what he does stability wise in the, the center of that lineup is invaluable and sort of will always be underrated if that's possible given the amount people have talked about him the last few years. I mean, I think 
what Trey does at the top of the order, what Eaton can bring there is, is going to help, but it only goes as far as the guys that are able to turn them around and, and drive them in. And I think what Murphy does is gives you someone who can not only drive you in, but also just do the right thing in every situation. You know, if you have two guys on, he'll hit the ball where you want it. He'll hit the sack fly. I mean, he just makes the right kind of contact seemingly whenever he needs to. And, and that's the kind of hitter that is going to complement any lineup. And, you know, if Bryce is kind of a roller coaster you sort of know what you have in Murphy, even if the average falls, even if he's not quite the same guy as last year. He's such a good situational hitter that I just think he sets all those other pieces in motion and, and is kind of the glue that you need when you do have kind of a lot of uh, volatile players, I guess I would say, around him or, or unpredictable players because you don't know what you're getting and Turner and Harper and all those guys. I think he's going to be kind of the key. And I think it was almost inevitable that Dusty Baker's first season would be seen as a success and and maybe would be a success because it was obviously a talented core. And as long as no one was choking anyone else, if that would be a positive step, you just needed that team not to self-destruct in the way that it seemed to under Matt Williams at the end of 2015. So can we say now that we've established that he has sort of restored stability to the clubhouse and hasn't lost the clubhouse, presumably, can we say anything about how he has evolved or not evolved as a manager? Or were you surprised by anything he did or didn't do tactically or anything in the way that he spoke about the game last year? I think the thing that surprised me the most is that he seems incredibly willing to delegate. You know, when you, when you look at the moves he makes late in games with his bullpen. Of course, like any manager, there were a lot of moves where you're like, well, what if he had done this? And you kind of question. But ultimately, a lot of those decisions really have come from Mike Maddox. And he's put a lot of trust in Mike Maddox, the pitching coach, to manage his starting rotation. He's sort of been very hands-off with that. You know, there are times where he will kind of either jokingly, but maybe not even not know who's starting the next spring training game, because that's Maddox's plan. And he says, oh, go talk to him. And I think that that's something that was sort of well set up here is that, you know, we've all heard the stories about Dusty and Pryor and Wood and overrunning guys and all this. And whether they're true or not, it's sort of been eliminated from the conversation in some way because this isn't really his pitching staff to manage. It's Mike Maddox's, and that's something he wants. He's fine with that. He has given that power to him, and I think that that's something that has really helped the Nats just allow Dusty to kind of, you know, focus on those moves late in games, but also focus on his hitters and the personalities and all of those, you know, intangible things that he's so good at and maybe take something away that he's not quite as good at managing. Do you get the sense, given that the Cubs are clearly the team that get talked about as the juggernaut and the National League, and then you've got all of the people like us who are arguing that the Dodgers are right there and almost as good, do you get the sense that the Nationals are sort of left out of that picture? And I guess the follow-up question would be, do you think that the Nationals belong to be in that picture with the, the upper crust of the National League at this point? I think it's really fascinating how much difference a closer would have made. I think that the the difference between having Jansen or Melanson and not has left them out of those conversations. And maybe that's just my perception, but I, I you know, I, I don't know what you could argue with if they had that guy. I don't know that it's unfair to leave them out. They've never won a playoff series and that that's always going to hover there. But I do think, like you've said, you know, the position players are hard to argue against. When healthy, that starting rotation is incredibly hard to argue against with, you know, Scherzer, Strasburg, Broark, you know, even Geo, who's sometimes painful to watch, but the numbers are always there. So, you know, I, I think that bullpen, it really holds them out of that conversation. 
and probably fairly so because in the end that's who's been on the mound three times in October when they haven't been able to win and until it's until they do I, I think it's fair to kind of put them on a second tier and I you know I think that is the reason that they're not the Cubs and Dodgers I mean maybe there are others but the big reason being the fact that they don't have that lockdown closer and don't have guys in that bullpen who have proven themselves when it really really matters. Well, I guess that takes us to the necessary evil of the preview podcast segments, which is the win total prediction. Can you give us a number for the Nats in 2017? Man, I'd rather not, of course, and I'll look like an idiot in <laughs> way. But, of course. Um, man, 89. I think I say 89. Is that going to be the most in the National League East? I, think, I, mean, I don't know. I think that division got a lot better. I think I, I think the Mets might edge them, but mm-hmm. we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Too, we hate asking as much as you hate answering. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You can read Chelsea in the Washington Post. You can find her on Twitter at Chelsea underscore Janes. Chelsea, thanks as always for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll be right back to talk twins with Aaron Gleeman. Well, it's been a quiet winter in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Aaron Gleeman's hometown, and he joins us now, the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and, of course, a contributor to the Baseball Prospectus Annual. Hey, Aaron. Hey, guys. How's it going? Okay. So not a ton to talk about in the Twins offseason as far as actual players go. We can talk about the front office change. Maybe we can start there since it's the most momentous thing to happen to the Twins this offseason. Maybe one of the most momentous things to happen to any team this winter just because of how unusual it is for the Twins to change personnel. So has there been anything? I know it's early, but is there a clear sign yet of something that the new Derek Falvey and Thad Levine regime has done that the old Terry Ryan team wouldn't have done? Or is it too soon to pinpoint something? Sort of. I mean, they haven't done that much. So most of what we've been trying to kind of parse through is just how they behave publicly, which is, you know, they talk uh, a lot differently, certainly, than Terry Ryan did. Their buzzwords are a lot different than Terry Ryan's buzzwords. Uh, mm-hmm. They also talk about, you know, instituting some changes, especially in terms of pitching development in the minors. But in terms of stuff they've actually done, I mean, they've made like really one move of any sort of substance, and then they've claimed a few guys off waivers. They've signed some of their, you know, personal favorites uh, to minor league deals, and then they've signed a couple you know, Matt Belisle to a $2 million deal. That's really like the second biggest move of the whole offseason. And so it's tough to really get a feel for what they're trying to do. It's interesting in a sense that I think when they were hired and, you know, it took basically 20 years for the Twins to decide to do something different, I think a lot of people assumed, well, they're going to really shake things up. They're going to make a ton of moves. And maybe the the Dozier trade talks with the Dodgers that ended up not happening was their attempt to sort of kickstart that and who knows what the the other dominoes would have been from that but really they've mostly not done a lot but if you look at this roster it's possible that they came in on day one and said well this team's going to improve by you know 10 or 15 games without us really even doing anything and if they like the young guys that they have in place I don't know that there was that much need to 
to shake it up. Right. That uh, they had the quiet winner, but like you said, they they inherited what's <laughs> a a mostly young roster. There's clearly some young players who have certain profiles. Where do you think that? From the front office's perspective, they're coming in, they're thinking, well, we don't know what we're going to get out of Buxton or Sano or Barrios or someone like Kepler or someone like Kenny's Vargas. Is is this like the most volatile young team that you can remember, except for, I guess, maybe last year's equivalent of the yeah. same team? Uh, I think so. I mean, it, it's tough. Like, in theory, if you just sort of, especially offensively, like the pitching to me is still a huge question mark, but... If you look offensively, you know, you listed off four or five guys who are all in their second or third year basically now, and they were right around average offensively. So in theory, if they all take just a little bit of a natural kind of progression forward, you have a pretty good offense there. But I mean, I could not, I certainly would not bet on, you know, whether Byron Buxton will hit 220 or 260 or 280. And I'm a huge fan of his. And the same sort of applies to to Sano and Kepler. Like there's so much... I guess I wouldn't be surprised at either extreme. And when you have five or six of those guys in one lineup, it's tough to really get a like a strong sense of like how good is the actual baseline for this team. Hmm. What were the old buzzwords that you're not hearing so much anymore? <laughs> well, it, I mean, Terry Ryan was relatively open with the media, but like he would do all kinds of interviews and he would attempt to you know dance around most questions. But he was so like monotone old school scouting and so like they even i mean even going past him to their you know their analytics department and stuff they were sort of told like there's no reason for you to give any details about what we're doing let's just try to you know kind of keep this in house which is fine except i think that frustrated some of the people uh who maybe wouldn't have minded a little more publicity or a little more you know light on what they were doing but yeah i mean terry ryan was I mean, he is as old school as you're going to get, and for better or worse, it turned worse at the end of his his tenure, obviously. But I would say that particularly when they started losing and he started having to you know, get much tougher questions, because I, I don't think the Twin Cities media is really known as you know being that hard to deal with. But <laughs> you know, when you have five, six, 90 lost seasons in a row, it got that way. But at the end, he, would, he was very adept at not really answering a question, but kind of sounding like you're wise old grandpa in the process so that people would just go like well he knows what he's talking about so you know we won't push it which uh which of these patterns i guess better reflects the way that you've felt about the twins over the last few years in terms of their actual record they've won 70 games and then 83 and then 59 but if you look at well it's base runs record but essentially their record based on what they should have done they went from 74 wins to 73 to 71. Do you feel like it's been as volatile as as the record or have you basically sensed that this team is was worse than it looked 2 years ago and and a lot better than it looked last season? Yeah, I mean I think the le- I think that's definitely true. I mean I was shocked that they won 83 and even as it was happening, particularly I think it was May where they won 20 something games and then the rest of the season they were basically a 70 win team but they were so good in the one month. I think that was more I mean, it was just, they were knocking starters out of every game in the third inning and you'd score six runs and it's like, it doesn't matter what happens after that. <laughs> and then and then last year, I mean, they were really bad last year, but I think especially when it was such a young team and you throw some injuries in there and you get off to a terrible start again, it just all starts to, starts to snowball. And I think that's happened to them, you know, in multiple seasons in the last decade. But yeah, I would say that 
in general, they've kind of been, you know, a, a high 60s or uh, low 70s win team. And the going from 83 to 59 seems crazy <laughs> at first glance. And then the flip side is when I'm trying to explain to people that, you know, some projections and stuff have them winning 75, 78, even 80 games this year. People go, well, how can you go from 59 to high 70s without making any moves? And my thing is always, well, how did you go from 83 to 59 without really making any moves? <laughs> if you had to pick one of the players we've named already or another player, if you'd prefer, as the most likely candidate to take a big step forward this season, do you have one in mind? I think it'll be Buxton. I mean, I think there's still some chance that he just never has the, I don't know, strike zone control or whatever you want to call it to really take advantage of his skills. But I'm really hoping that, you know, he went nuts in September. He was hitting not only home runs, but, you know, upper deck home runs, and he controlled the strike zone a little bit better. Uh, and I, I really think he's, you know, a top five defensive center fielder no matter what happens offensively. And so if he can be, it's strange because his skill set, just being so fast and drafted so high, people, I think, said, well, he'll be the leadoff man for years to come. And that's not really his game. And I think if he can be more of a you know number five, number six hitter of what people think of that, you know, prototypically, if he hits 260 with 20, 25 homers, an amazing you know gold glove caliber defense in center field, I think that's a hell of a player. Whether or not that lives up to the hype and everyone's maybe crazy expectations for him is another issue. But I think they really need him to not only be great defensively because so much of their pitching relies still because they don't get any strikeouts still on great defense, but they really need him to be more than a bottom-of-the-order hitter. And I think he's a perfect example of – I have no idea where I would project his exact numbers, but I, I'm, I'm still convinced that he's a, a potentially really great player. Sort of a Buxton equivalent over in the rotation. We talked, or I guess I mentioned to Jose Barrios before, and we can maybe have a dedicated Jose Barrios question in a little bit because that was a nightmare that he had last season. But the I think the young pitcher that gets a lot less attention, mostly because of Barrios, who's who's been buried in there, is Trevor May, who I understand is fighting for a rotation spot this season after being a reliever all of last year. And in the past, May May started, I think, 25, 30 games in the major leagues, and he hasn't been absolutely terrible, but, you know, still big arm, decent pedigree, new catcher, new management. What are your what are your thoughts on Trevor May and in terms of his likelihood to emerge out of a otherwise mediocre starting staff? I would be pleased if they gave him a legit shot to to win a rotation spot because I don't I don't think he's, you know, has ace upside, but I think he could be a guy who gives you you know, mid-rotation, 180 innings of, of pretty good pitching, actually gets some strikeouts, actually has a decent fastball, that stuff. I'm Based on what they have in-house, especially if Phil Hughes is healthy since they're paying him so much, I, I just have a hard time seeing them actually clearing a rotation spot for May. And, I mean, they basically had a chance to do the same thing last year, and he ended up staying in the in the bullpen. And he has it. I mean, he's definitely capable of being a, a late-inning impact reliever, but he might be one of those guys who – for a lot of guys, when they struggle with durability as a starter, you move them to the, the bullpen and you hope they stay healthy. I almost think he's the opposite because his injuries have come as a reliever after previously being really durable as a starter. And most of his reliever injuries have been, you know, back injuries and neck injuries and stuff that maybe warming up and pitching back to back days applies differently to him than it would you know, pitching every fifth day and trying to throw 120 pitches and all that stuff. So I think he has a chance to be a really good reliever, but I think just looking at the Twins 
rotation options, they'd be better off giving him a legit path to, you know, at least see what he can do as a starter in the first half. At least, you know, like you said, he's made 25, 30 starts in the majors. Give him a chance to make another 15 that you can at least evaluate before you throw him into a role where he's only going to throw, you know, 65 innings a year. Jose Barrios question. (laughs) Jose Barrios question mark? Yeah. I really, I mean, it's similar to the rotation stuff with May. Like, I, I don't know how they find a spot for him unless the new regime, front office regime, is just fully convinced that you have to let him sink or swim in 25, 30 starts this year, which wouldn't be the worst approach. But he was so different than as how he was advertised in the minors, which was, you know, a composed guy who has good stuff and throws strikes. And, I mean, his command of his fastball was just terrible. And his breaking stuff looked pretty decent, but he was always 3-1, 3-0, and, and hitters would just spit at it to the point that the usual stuff popped up of, oh, is he tipping his pitches? Just because, you know, there was one start, I think it was maybe against the Blue Jays, where he would just throw, you know, 10 what appeared to be pretty sharp breaking, you know, sliders, and they didn't even offer him at, at all. And I think it's possible he was tipping his pitches, but more likely is he just needs to get ahead and he needs to show that he can throw his fastball for strikes. And if he doesn't develop, I mean, they're going to really struggle to be anything more than a mediocre rotation just because, you know, he's been their top pitching prospect for a long time. And if you look down into the minors, they have some intriguing arms at single A and double A, but no one who I think could reasonably expect to be more than like a third or fourth starter. Related to the uh, sort of modest upside in the pitching staff, how excited are you to have a, a really good defensive catcher in Jason Castro now that you've gone through your your Kurt Suzuki's, your Juan Centeno's? I'm just going to go back through this page here. Your Chris Herman. Chris Herman's. I don't know why I'm pluralizing. You didn't have multiple Chris Herman's, although it feels like the Twins have. <laughs> Eric Fryer, Josmiel Pinto, uh, Chris Herman again. You've had some bad bad defensive catchers, especially in terms of, of the pitch framing, which we love to talk about. And Castro represents an enormous improvement in that specific regard. Can't promise anything offensively, but defensively, he's he's going to help the pitching staff to some extent. How much do you think they will really benefit from his his stability back there? I think it'll be huge because I, I'm someone that is intrigued by the pitch framing stuff and you know trying to learn as much as I can about the data and the impact that can be made. And this is such a perfect test case of taking a guy in Suzuki who had a, a really good defensive rep- reputation right up until the point that we started being able to quantify stuff, at, at which point he plummeted to the bottom of the rankings. And then Castro has been like, you know, a top three or top five framer for the past three or four years. You could not get a more uh, extreme difference between the two. And so I'm really interested to see. I, I mean, it's not something that necessarily you're going to be able to to pick up on just on a pitch-by-pitch basis watching a game, whether – you know, at Target Field or on TV, but I think you're going to see an improvement by the pitching staff, part just because, you know, you regress from being one of the worst of all time to just being bad, and part because, I mean, it could legitimately be easily 25, 30 runs based on even conservative, you know, numbers from framing. So yeah, I'm I'm interested to see how it how it actually works, and also interested to see if, like, the, the local fans and media actually pick up on the impact being made by the catcher or if when someone like Barrios or someone like Kyle Gibson or something shows big improvement or if they just lump it all in with pitching. And how did you feel about the outcome, the non-outcome of all the Brian Dozier discussions? It was, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I went back and forth on it. I De Leon seemed like the type of prospect the Twins should want in that he has relatively good upside. He's pretty much MLB ready, which they've been talking about wanting. I think certainly Dozier's value is never going to be higher, not only because he's coming off a huge season, but because they only have him for two more years. I'm not totally convinced that they won't be able to trade him in June or July for a, a pretty good prospect or two. But I don't know that you're going to do any better than DeLeon, which makes me think that, A, they either weren't huge fans of him, they maybe viewed him as a mid-rotation guy instead of someone with more upside, or they just feel like they wanted to try to establish some sort of leverage, taking over, making their first big trade. They didn't want to be perceived as getting you know ripped off or whatever. But it's interesting that the Dodgers then just turned around and basically said, well, we'll just trade DeLeon for pre 2016 pre-breakout version of Dozier. So it gives Twins fans, they can track uh, Logan Forsythe, they can track DeLeon, they can track Dozier. There's a lot to get angry about uh, if any of that goes good or bad. Byung-Ho Park, he was one of the Twins I was most excited to watch last season, and he was exciting for what felt like two weeks or something, and then he uh, he tanked, got hurt, got worse, didn't play. I heard some, some rumors from a, uh, well, it doesn't matter where, I heard that he had a spring training injury that he never owned up to, which uh, which could potentially explain why he was so bad. But, I mean, you presumably watched him a lot more than I did, and the Twins presumably watched him a lot more than you did, and they decided that he was worth putting on waivers. Ultimately, they kept him because no team wanted to give him his very small contract guarantee. So just how down is the team, and relatedly, how down are you on Byung-Ho Park? Is he effectively out of the team's plans now, or what? Sort of. I think in different circumstances, they might have kept him, but they have Kenny Vargas and they have Miguel Sano and they have a couple other guys who may end up needing time at DH, Joe Maurer maybe. Uh, so he was like no better than probably third on that depth chart. I still, I mean, his power is for real. It, I, I'm absolutely convinced that if healthy, and that was a big thing, like you mentioned, I think that if not uh, a spring training injury, it was certainly a April injury that he had that he tried to play through and whether or not that was him not fessing up or the twins doing what they've done a lot over the last decade of kind of trying to get people to play through things. I'm not sure, but if you give him 500 at bats, he's going to hit 25, 30 homers. Like his power is, is for real. I just wonder if he can be more than kind of a platoon part-time first baseman DH, which ultimately doesn't have that much value. I, I don't, a lot of people seem surprised that he passed through waivers. I wasn't necessarily, especially this off season because there's a bunch of, you know, 25 homer guys who don't do much else who are having to settle for, for small contracts this offseason, and I'd lump him in there. Like, if he gets another chance and he's healthy, I could see him being a productive, you know, part-time semi-regular, but I don't think they're going to go out of their way. It's definitely Vargas is going to get the first crack at the everyday DH job, unless they mm-hmm. sign someone else. So Paul Molitor preceded the current regime, usually not great for a manager's job security. He's also coming off a season in which his team had the worst record in baseball, also usually not great for a manager's job security. So trying to keep track of all the different effectively wild ways we have to say hot seat. <laughs> so let me express it in, I think there are three of them now. How wobbly is his chair? How close is his squid to being fried? And a recent submission from Miles Ray, this is evidently a soccer term or was used as the title of a soccer book. How close is he to living on the volcano? <laughs> I like that. I would say he's uh, he's reasonably close to living on the volcano. I would say 
my first reaction was, why would they not bring in not only their own manager, but their own coaching staff, their own development people? And, you know, while they, the Twins got rid of Terry Ryan and replaced him basically with a two-headed front office boss, a lot of the, you know, third in command, fourth in command, all the way down have remained. Uh, Rob Anthony, who was the assistant GM, is still the assistant GM. Molitor, like you mentioned, is still around. And But as I thought of it more, it might be a little bit like maybe they're thinking we're probably not going to be that good this year and maybe next year. Why bring in our own person to kind of take those losses and that frustration and all that stuff? And if we have, you know, I, I don't get the sense that they think Molitor is a bad guy or disliked by the players. And so if things go well with him, you stick with him. If things go poorly with him, I think he'll have a, a relatively short leash at which point they can bring in whomever they've had discussions about. You know, if I ever get the GM job, this is who I w- would want to manage maybe next year or the year after. But as we talked about earlier, there's a pretty good chance this team's going to be a lot better just by default. You know, and if they get to 78, 80 wins, there's no way they're going to get rid of Molitor in Minnesota uh, following a 59 loss season. So I guess before we wrap up, let's look at the AL Central and we'll play the impossible uh, swapsies game. So obviously, present and long-term future, the Twins are worse off than the Indians. Indians, one of the classes of baseball, apparently, they're off the table. But Tigers, Royals, White Sox, and Twins, you represent the Twins. Would you trade everything that you have about the Twins, excluding the past? So would you trade your present and future situation with the Twins for the present and future situations of any of those other three teams? Hmm. I mean, I think definitely not the Tigers or the Royals. I think the only one you could really make an argument for was the White Sox, just because now Mm -hmm. their farm system is pretty stacked. I don't know that I would be allowed to live in Minnesota any longer if I said (laughs) uh, on a recorded thing that I would want to swap the Twins for the White Sox. But I really, I I mean, farm system-wise, the Twins are probably in the bottom third right now, but that's because all these guys we've been talking about Sano and Buxton and Kepler and Barrios <laughs> and everyone, they've graduated to the majors, but they're still sort of prospect aged. And so I think in terms of young talent, I think you would probably have to take the twins. And I don't know <laughs> that it's going to equal some huge gains, you know, past kind of mediocrity this year, but I absolutely think in two or three years, the twins will certainly be in better shape than the Royals and the Tigers. And unless a couple of the guys, the White Sox just acquired, have some huge breakout and become superstars, I would probably take them, the twins over the White Sox too. Yeah. And for whatever it's worth, Keith Law actually ranked the Twins farm system 11th, so I don't know how much that means, but that's pretty good. I'll take it. In what season will the Twins next have an above-average strikeout rate from their pitching (laughs) set? (laughs) Well, yeah, I don't know. Uh, It's going to be a while um, (laughs) because, I mean, certainly the new decision-makers are going to push towards higher strikeout guys than the previous ones, but... I don't know that, I mean, Barrios could be a, you know, 150, 175 strikeout guy, but they don't have a whole lot of, you know, 95 mile an hour throwing, you know, double digit strikeout rate in the minors guys near the majors for rotation. For the bullpen, there's a couple guys, but I mean, it's, I think it's going to take them a while. I think that the, the Terry Ryan regime started talking about wanting to add more velocity and add more strikeouts in their last like two or three years on the job, but mostly that just meant trading for some not good pitchers who threw hard, like let's say (laughs) Pat Light, or spending waiver claims on guys who threw hard and then ultimately turned into nothing. So to actually overhaul the organization and actually add not only guys who throw hard and get strikeouts, but you know can actually throw strikes and be good, I mean, I think that's going to – that might take them longer than 
making the team competitive overall. I'd like to point out just for the record that the Twins did go from in 2015 6.5 strikeouts per nine. Last year they got all the way up to 7.4. The <laughs> the problem is that the league average was 8.1, so they're still not close. Yeah. This year they're again projected for 7.4, but they they are at least within range. They are not a clear bottom feeder anymore in that specific solitary regard. <laughs> Good yeah. to know. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you think there are too many strikeouts in baseball now, just wait till the Twins yeah. are trying. <laughs> yeah. That will only inflate it further. All right, so give us the segment ending win total prediction for 2017. I will say, let's say 75 wins. I think they will be significantly better, both for just because that's how things go after a 59-win season and because guys like Buxton and Sano will, will take a step forward. But I do not think that the pitching particularly the bullpen and the the infield defense are good enough for them to be legit sort of wildcard contenders deep into the season. But I'll, so I'll say 75. All right. Well, you can find Aaron Gleeman writing and editing everything at baseballperspectus.com. <laughs> you can hear him on Gleeman and the Geek, which is both a podcast and a radio show if you're in the Minneapolis area on KFAN. He may have some announcement about other programs that he's going to be involved in next week. So you can follow him on Twitter also to catch that at Aaron Gleeman. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, guys. See you. Thank you. All right. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already done so include Dino Champlone, Walt Kaufman, Klaus Vestergaard, Chris Clarkin, and Kelvin Brum. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Keep your questions coming to me and Jeff via email at podcast at fangrass.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We'll be back next week with the preview podcast for the Giants and the Braves. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Gonna have-